What you're about to hear is an audio update for the Message to Kings podcast. My friend Jason Watson has helped to update the introduction and has created an entirely new song called Armies of Ages. It will be our new anthem for the podcast. Jason's already an accomplished musician, and now he's taking steps in the instrumental media space. If you like what you hear, check out his website, nightwatch.squarespace.com. I'll put lots of links on the Facebook page. Thanks again, Jason, for enhancing the quality of this program and with your audio expertise in remixing the podcast. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 48, Judge Deborah and Barack. Historical note before we begin this episode. As we head into the center of the judge's timeline, we're confronted with a problem. If you add all the timelines of oppression and periods of rest during the time of judges, it adds up to 400 plus years. This creates a problem for a chronological historical study. The reason being is that the timeline of Judges is about 300 years, from 1350 B.C. to 1050 B.C. This creates a serious problem connecting all the people and events. Here's the deal. Most likely Samuel, the traveling prophet and teacher, wrote the book of Judges, and he wrote it in a topical or character-driven format. We've talked about this before with the last few chapters of Judges and how they overlap into the beginning first couple Judges, but now the challenge really presents itself. So far, none of the actual Judges have overlapped, but we are almost halfway through the timeline. This is where it gets interesting. It's like a puzzle trapped in Scripture that can be pieced together with the right clues to bring the timelines together. For the timelines of the rest of Judges, I'll be leaning upon some charts created by Steve Rude on the website www.bible.ca. The charts on this side of the timelines of Judges are quite good. I'll be posting them to Facebook and links to the site. The next four Judges were actually contemporaries of each other, and these accounts will overlap. When the Bible reads there was oppression for 20 years, it doesn't always define location or region. For example, the 20 years of oppression of Jabin was most likely in the north, while at the end of this 20 years, the oppression of Midian occurred in the south, which Gideon helped to overthrow. Another example is how Samson most likely lived in the time of Samuel, though they don't mention each other. So as we navigate, I'll be leaning upon these charts to attempt to reconcile the timelines and give a greater picture and I will try to connect the clues as we cross them. In the last episode, we slid the evacuation from the northern invasion of Jabin and Sisera with the involvement of Shamgar, whose life is a mystery, and we introduced Deborah and Barak. In this account, we'll be digging deeper into the two characters, Deborah and Barak, and introduce another celebrated assassin whose name is J.L., Judges 4.1. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
So the Lord sold him into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagoam. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had nine hundred chariots of iron, and for twenty years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. All right, Israel is now being oppressed by Jabin, king of Hazor. Hazor was a city well situated above northern Israel and was most likely a Hittite outpost or ally at this time, thus the 900 iron chariots. Given our timeline and the end of the Hittites, this story could have greatly assisted in their eventual end. Now Josephus takes this invasion by Jabin to an entirely new level. Check this out. This is Josephus's quote. The Israelites were brought under slavery by Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, and that before they had a short breathing time after the slavery under the Moabites. For this Jabin came out of Hazor, a city that was situated over Lake Simachonites, and had in pay 300,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen and no fewer than 3,000 chariots. Sisera was his commander of all his army, and he was the principal person in the king's favor. He so sorely beat the Israelites when they fought with him that he ordered them to pay tribute. So we got to stop here. I mean, 300,000 soldiers, that's intense. And we will learn in the next episode, the Midianites, who were nearly destroyed by Moses, have invaded now with over 100,000 troops in southern Israel. If these quantities of soldiers are to be trusted, there must have been a huge population increase prior to this time period outside of Israel. But when adversity comes, it's only a setup for God. I had this thought this week that setbacks are only setups for God. That setbacks are only setups. These gigantic armies can only give rise to God's glory that he gains in battles against them. So now we introduce the prophetess of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 4, verse 4, 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lebedoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. All right, Deborah, who is this lady? And I didn't know there was many prophets in Israel this time. I mean, she's kind of a mystery. Her name means bee, like a honeybee. And the Bible doesn't give a lot of detail on her background. But there are some Jewish traditional accounts about her. A few point to her working with the Levites near the place of the tabernacle. The Bible says she held her court of judgeship of sorts under a tree. And a few traditional accounts state that she was a furnisher of the wicks for the holy lamps in the tabernacle. One story says that she made them so big as to turn the lights into blazing torches. It's a cool story, but not a lot of basis for it, but it's a really cool story. But we do know, no doubt, that she was a light for Israel at this time. What we can learn from her name is that she carries a big sting, and that she clearly was a queen bee arousing the nest of Israel to take flight and take action. Another role of the bee is to cross-pollinate and to bring about fruit and harvest through her actions. We can learn from her song in Judges chapter 5 that 
She was quite proud of herself, and she liked to use the word I. And for her to be called a prophetess in her culture meant that she had been proven by her actions. And like Jesus said, wisdom is proven right by her deeds. Next, we hear her directive to Israel. Judges 4, 6. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinahim, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulon. And against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. All right, Barak took up the call and came to Deborah. So who's Barak? He's actually a greater mystery than Deborah, possibly overshadowed by women in this episode because of his doubt, which I tried to slip into the last episode. The most we know of Barak is that his first words recorded in the Bible are words of doubt. Here's Barak's response to Deborah, Judges 4, 8. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. All right, so it's an interesting response from Deborah. I mean, she's pretty aggressive. She said that Barak will be victorious, but because he requires the assistance of a woman, and because he holds doubt in his heart, God will be giving the glory of victory to another. It's a fascinating thing to discuss doubting God. Even more interesting when we look at Gideon next, who tested God so many times. In this case, Barak, who doubted God, he truly lost bonus credits for this. In fact, I believe if he would have answered his call directly and with faith, true faith, then we would be talking about Judge Barak, not Judge Deborah, and later a woman by the name of Jael. There is some context. He would go, but he wouldn't go if she didn't go with him. What kind of a leader was he? Kind of sounds like a mama's boy. Only if mama says so. Only if the queen bee comes with me. I like to think of Barack as the Bible version of someone with an attachment disorder. Possibly the child who nursed till he was six years old. It was just too hard for mama to let go of this child. God made Barak a leader, but he wanted to follow instead. In fact, he would only go and fight if his mama, figuratively speaking, Deborah went with him. Imagine if God called you to do something incredible, and your response was, I'll go if my mama comes with me, but I will not go if my mama doesn't come with me. I mean, in a time when women did not have full rights as men, for him to declare this was absurd and looked down upon, even by a woman and the prophetess Deborah. Once Deborah and Barak agreed to go together with the army, at this point Israel parked an army of 10,000 soldiers at Mount Tabor. If we are continuing the story from our dramatization segment from last episode, it is now 20 years since the initial invasion of Jabin, and because Israel 
has finally repented, it's time for God to bring back northern Israel into freedom. So let's talk geography. Below Mount Tabor to the west is one of the most famous valleys in all of history and even future history. It has a name. The name is the Valley of Jezreel. It will be notorious for many battles in world history. And so admired was this valley and perfectly suited for warfare. Napoleon Bonaparte said of this valley when he visited it during one of his attempts to escape from his disastrous Egyptian campaign. All of the armies of the world can maneuver their forces on this vast plain. He marveled at this field and possibly prophesied unknowingly of the great battle that will occur in this field at the end of the age in Revelation 16. Many, many things will happen in this valley, and we'll try to bring them to bear as events transpire here over time. As Barak assembles and organizes his army, a traitor catches wind of Israel's invasion. He is a traitor named Heber the Kenite, and he is a descendant of Moses' father-in-law. And he had a wife named Jael, and he was a trader who conducted deals with and supplied Sisera with trade goods. He told Sisera about Barak's invasion, and Sisera rallied his army. Judges 4.11 Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hohab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebah tree at Zanapen, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Agoam to the river Kishon. Setting the scene of the battlefield, if we are going with Josephus's numbers, Israel is outnumbered 30 to 1. It's absurd, and Barak was there leading the people of Israel in a strategic location, a mountaintop, considering the thousands of horsemen and chariots that Jabin possessed. In the eyes of Jabin, despite being below the mountaintop, this was an easy victory, outnumbering Israel 30 to 1. Most likely, Barak is terrified of the odds against him, but Deborah encourages him. Judges 4.14 Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? In this, Deborah is implying just as in the days of Joshua, God and his angels were going ahead of Israel. She confirmed this in her song in Judges 5. And Josephus takes the detail of this battle to a new level I've never seen before. But before we get there, let's hear the rest of the biblical account. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all of his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and as far away as Harosheth Hagoam and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword not a man was left. So that's the biblical account. And here is Josephus's wild statements and even more detailed statements about this battle. But first, Josephus makes the point that before the battle, 
Barak was so affrighted at the multitude of the enemies that he was going to retreat, but Deborah restrained him. Here's the account of the battle. So the battle began, and when they were come to a close fight, there came down from heaven a great storm, with a vast quantity of rain and hail, and the wind blew the rain in the face of the Canaanites, and so darkened their eyes that their arrows and slings were of no advantage to them, nor would the coldness of the air permit the soldiers to make use of their swords. While this storm did not so much incommodate the Israelites because it came in their backs, they also took such courage upon the apprehension that God was assisting them that they fell upon the very midst of their enemies and slew a great number of them, so that some of them fell by the Israelites, some fell by their own horses, which were put into disorder, and not a few were killed by their own chariots. Wow, isn't that awesome? There was such a great storm at Israel's back. The rain and hail was so intense it took away their advantages of arrows and slings and cavalry, and the freakishly cold weather incapacitated their army. And many of Sisera's own chariots ran over their own men. According to Josephus, 300,000 soldiers were routed by God and defeated by Barak and Deborah's army. And with his army destroyed, Sisera fled the battlefield and found refuge miles to the north in the tents of Heber the Kenite, who had originally told them about the Israelites' incursion into their controlled lands, who had always helped his people. But Heber wasn't around. His wife was, and her name was Jael. She welcomed him, Sisera, into her tent. Here's the account. Judges 4, 19. Then Sisera said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. I mean, that is nasty. Josephus would actually use the descriptive language and state that she nailed him to the ground. I mean, gnarly. This is another assassination in this age. Ehud was the first. Another oppressor destroyed by assassination. No doubt Barak would have killed Sisera, but it was left to a woman, just as Deborah prophesied. So why a tent peg? I mean, I find it fascinating that she used a hammer and a tent peg. Talk about fulfilling that scripture that God would expand your tent pegs. She was a laborer, and she used what was in her hands, just like Shamgar. No matter how brutal it was, she fulfilled the word of Deborah, and the principality that Sisera was was torn down that day by a laborer's hammer. So Barak does not quit here. Once he discovers the death of Sisera and that by the hand of Jael, he still pursues Jabin and the entirety of his army to destroy him. Judges 4.23 So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, 
And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I want to pick on Barak for a while, but first I want to just note that, I mean, he is a hero. I mean, 10,000 guys against 300,000, it's outrageous. You know, Barak is a hero. He's a mighty man. But I have to go back and talk about his first words. We have to go back to our hero's first words in this account. For he lost much of the glory that God had planned for him because of these words. He said, in response to Deborah's call, If you go, I will go. If you do not go, I will not go. Wow. That was his obedience. I mean, what is obedience? One definition of obedience is performance of what is required or enjoined by authority. Barak's obedience was dependent upon another. What if we went further and said his faith was dependent upon another? If obedience actually flows from our heart in connection with the one we trust the most, who does Barak trust the most? God, who is commanding him to be brave? Or does his faith rest in another, namely Deborah? You see, he put his trust in another over God, or at least in part. His faith was not enough to move him to obey the only one able to perform what was even asked of him. If we examine Barak further from a psychological perspective, one would probably call him to account for an attachment disorder. When we place our trust more in another person than even ourselves, Barak was empowered, but he couldn't let go of Deborah to win his own battles. See, mama's boys are the boys that never really grow up. And they're still controlled by their mother's ideas and thoughts for them. Whatever she says goes. If this extends itself into the faith realm, it can be extremely dangerous to one's Christian walk. Where it goes wrong is that it it doesn't invite the supernatural revelation of Jesus. It disallows personal experience because it's not needed. In the next episode, we'll discuss Gideon who doubted God But ask yourself this question, what is worse, doubting God or placing your faith in the hands of another? See, I believe this is why Barak lost out so much in this account. He could have reconciled his issues with God alone, but instead he said, I will go if you go and not go if you don't go. It's such a statement of limitation. See, Jesus has called us to a unique faith walk with him. If you have placed your faith in another, or if you have allowed someone to influence your life to the point of losing control of your own decisions, Jesus can remove those unhealthy attachments so that you can walk in complete faith in him. Just ask him to reveal those unhealthy attachments. And once he does this, let him sever those soul ties which are not from him. See, next then, watch how unique and freeing a relationship with Jesus can be, so that when a prophet comes to you, like in the times of Deborah, your response will not be, I will go if you go, but instead your response will be like the disciples who dropped everything to follow Jesus Christ when he came knocking on the doors of their heart.
Before we wrap up this episode, I want to say thank you to all the listeners that sent me feedback on the last episodes. The following is an email I received from Thea S. in Houston, Texas. Just heard the final episode of Shamgar and Deborah. Wow, just wow. I've been blessed for several months now after finding your podcast on Stitcher. You've really made the books of the Old Testament come alive, and I couldn't let another day go by without saying thank you. I'm sure I'm not the only person you've encouraged with all your hard work. God bless you. I pray for you and your podcast. And my response to Thea's email and others is just authentic gratitude, for I I am overwhelmed by the positive feedback and how many of you are touched by these podcasts. And most of all, I am so pleased that this podcast has helped others with their walk and to be led closer to Jesus and to fall in love with his word. Thank you again, Thea, and all of the listeners out there. Your feedback and encouragement go a long ways. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Next week, we'll discuss Gideon and the original 300. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com.